Welcome to our official Rutgers SECD Lab podcast, SECD On Demand. My name is Isar Abdul-Jalil, and I am a rising third-year student at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. I study international relations history and music, and I am an intern on the digital communications and social media team at the SECD Lab. I'm joined here today to meet with Zaire Ali by my wonderful co-host, Esther Kim. Hello, everyone listening. My name is Esther Kim, and I am also a rising junior. I am studying communication, specializing in public relations and human resource management at Rutgers University. This summer, I am an intern on the digital communications and social media team for the SCCD lab at Rutgers, along with Izar. Now, it's our pleasure to formally introduce Zaire Ali. Zaire is an incoming first year PhD student at CUNY School of Public Health in the Community Health and Health Policy Program, a senior field consultant here at Rutgers SEC Lab, and he is the founder and CEO of nonprofit, the Urban Health Collaborative. We are so excited to meet with you today. So Zaire, tell us about your day. How are you doing? Hello, um, my day is going pretty well. Um, it's it's beautiful outside. So oh yeah, I was happy about that. You know, it's been it's been weird this weather, but uh, today is you know I'm doing good. The weather's good, and I'm good. You know, I um I can't complain. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous right now, but um, <laughs> overall, you know, I'm doing fantastic. How are you two doing? Very good. Very good. I read through your Twitter a little bit and you just registered for classes, right? Yes, I did. It's super I did. exciting. I know. It is exciting. Um, This is what like my, wow, I've been to school for so long, it feels like. So registering for <laughs> classes is like, if I don't do that, I don't feel normal. <laughs> well, we're really glad to hear everything is going well. So we always like to ask this question for our viewers and listeners who are learning about SEL for the first time. So we want to ask you, what does SEL mean to you? So that's a good question. So I guess, you know, the first time I was asked this question was by, uh, I guess, Dr. Elias about three <laughs> summers ago. Then he was like, you know, social emotional learning. He told me what it is. And I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. So like now, I guess today, like, the way I operationalize social emotional learning, it's basically, you know, this set of tools or these skills that you can use in almost any stressful situation or just any situation to make the outcome better for you and people around you. And like a, a funny way or like a cool way I look at it, you know, three letters SEL, you know, the system everyone loves. Because if we use social emotional learning you know, and just incorporate that into our life in everything we do. I just feel like we're looking at it from an empathetic way. We're looking at it from, hey, let's put your shoes, let's put our feet in this other person's shoes for the day. We're, you know, we're just really trying to understand ourselves, life around us, and just critically analyze it every day to try to be, I guess, the best and most empathetic self we can be. No one loses from that, you know? Yeah, not at all. So it's pretty cool. So uh, you mentioned a little bit about Dr. Elias. Um, so you're an SECD Lab alum, and now you're a senior field consultant. How did you get started, and how did you first become interested in SEL? Did it start when Dr. Elias asked you? I got interested in SEL, I would say, whew, 
like when I met Dr. Elias, but I guess I've always been interested in, you know, the connection between others and, you know, our thought processes and how our families or, you know, people around us, how they really shaped and formed who we are. Because looking back at it, right, just looking back at how I got here, you know, working with Dr. Elias in the lab, one of my colleagues, you know, I met about four years ago, told me how they were in, you know, at Rutgers, you know, they were studying school psych, and they said they had this really cool consulting job at New Brunswick High School, and, you know, I just got into the program at that time, and they were like, hey, like, um, you know, they have openings if you're interested, and I'm like, sure, you know, it pays, and this, this, this work sounds pretty cool, because at the time, I was a mental health counselor at Carrier Clinic, so, it was like a good transition from what I was doing, you know, professionally every day after I graduated my master's to, you know, now. And the only difference, you know, I would say between what I was doing then and what I'm doing now is I was in a hospital, but now, you know, I'm in a school and I'm working in a a different, you know, community because I look at the school as, you know, not the same place as a hospital, but they're not that different. And in grand scheme of things, because at a hospital, you know, you're you're learning, you're healing, you're growing connection. And when you're at a school, you're not necessarily you're hurt physically, but you can be, right? But now looking at the looking at the school, students aren't always healthy, you know, because mentally, you know, we we know there's a lot of mental health problems that are we dealing with right now and we have been dealing yeah. with. And just like in COVID, we see how it's just making everything worse. And looking back at, you know, when I, like I said, when I first started working with Dr. Elias, he, he did say that social emotional learning and SEL, you know, that it's, it's complex, but it's not because we do it. We just don't know we do it. So, yeah, I, I hope I uh, answered that, you know, because I, yeah, I guess I became like interested in it. I've always been interested because I've always seen people doing things that I didn't know about or, you know, you'll see on TV, somebody committed a crime and I'm like, why do they do that? Or you hear someone got sick, you know, then I ask like, how do you feel? And then as I started to, you know, just grow in life and grow academically and professionally, I started to realize, oh, social emotional learning is just a thing that we do every day just talking to somebody or just sharing an experience or just crying you know being there for somebody because that's it you know we're learning every single day how to you know build how to grow how to interact we might not know we're learning or we might might not know what to call it or we might not even be able to operationalize what we're doing but we're doing it because as humans we we're every day we're growing and learning and yeah that's it I just I guess I've always been interested in it but you know once I started working in the lab and really learning more about the research that's when I became like oh that's what this is so did you always know you wanted to work with youth or that's definitely something that doesn't catch you off guard that you're working with youth today yeah I've always wanted to work with youth um I guess I first started working with youth when I was a youth myself so I was 17 and I, started, I was working at a, a camp in Plainfield, New Jersey called, you know, the Black United Fund. And it was like a summer mm-hmm. program. And I was a counselor. And I just I just love, you know, seeing this 
kids, you know, students, you could call them then and just see them grow, like see them coming in like the first day of a summer one way, then seeing them leave as like a whole new person is just like, wow, like what is that called? You know? So, and I've always believed that, you know, it, youth were the next up because, you know, currently there's people that are doing great things, you know, whether it's professionally, whether it's in a sport, whether it's in academically, but the next generation is always going to be, you know, what we should, or at least I think we should really focus on because, you know, youth, when they're, when, when you have a five-year-old and they see a lot of things that they really can't understand or there's no answers to it or they're just a lot of knowledge that they're trying to digest Mm -hmm. you could see how there's a lot of confusion and within that confusion sometimes there's turmoil which breeds anxiety and just giving them answers that they could really operationalize use and apply to the real life is I guess why I've always been like wow like youth children and the systems around them are what I care about because if they I just feel like if I if I helped plant the right seed or I helped you know just introduce them to a different idea other than what they know it could open up Pandora's box to knowledge and just a a whole life-changing experience oh yeah so yeah that's what yeah youth have always you know like I said been in my horizon and I've always enjoyed working with the youth so yeah we definitely want to hear more about your work as um, senior field consultant. So, like, what are some of the biggest tasks that you do, and how did you get to this position? Um, wow, I guess some of the biggest tasks I I do is just trying to really understand what's the need of my clients. In this case, the schools that I work in. So. You know, I could say a little more about my position. So as a senior senior field consultant, you know, I a social emotional learning consultant at the high school and I work in hand in hand with the the climate team. And basically my role there is to help improve the culture and climate of the school. And you know, that school within ho- hopefully it grows and breeds into just a, a all around just better environment for everybody there. And by doing that, and the way I do it is we're really just trying to go out into the school and hear the voices of the community. And when we look at the community, it's the teachers, the principals, the students, and the the people who work in the cafeteria, the security guards. So everybody who's involved is, you know, my client in that sense, or, you know, my target group. So how did I get there is, you know, I just been in the lab for, you know, a couple years and I, I stood the test of time and I guess I really grew a connection with the high school and the people there because when I first got there, it was, you know, my position was new to the high school and I was new to them. So it was, it was interesting because I didn't really know what they expected from me and they didn't know what to expect from me. So we both came into this position, I would say myself in high school, very vulnerable, but I was, I came into it in, you know, with a strength standpoint and trying to say, okay, this is what I think I'm good at. This is what I see that the school needs, you know? So I went in there just with, with very, with a very open mind. I was inquisitive. 
And I, my biggest task is just trying to help, like I said, help the school become more, the word I'm looking for, not, not more, more academically sound, because that's not what a school is only about, you know, it's not only about academics and grades. We're trying to help the school become a place that the community loves to be at. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah um, my biggest task from that is just really trying to collect the voices and ideas of the school body and see how those voices could be better and how they could be used in used in the um oh my gosh oh my gosh I'm sorry I'm <laughs> blank right here I'm sorry it's like okay. what we're doing at the high school is we're trying to take the voices of the student in the school community and see what they need to have a better environment what they need to thrive academically what they need to stop getting in trouble in school what students need to want to really get engaged with their classmates and want to be a part of the larger school body with pride. So right now you're still in the early stages stages of your career and pursuing a PhD currently in community health and health policy. So how did your undergraduate and graduate studies and all of these experience that we've been talking about form, like bring you onto this path? Okay, so I would guess looking at it, I will start with my undergrad. So my undergraduate, I have a, a, a bachelor's of science and a associate of arts and my bachelor's in criminal justice, no, no, health and physical education in the correctional setting and my minor is in criminal justice. And those two programs really set me up to have this, this community standpoint and to look at, look at what's going on from a community perspective because I've always seen, you know, black and brown youth, just any, just minorities, you know, end up in trouble in school, end up in jail, or end up in situations that weren't so desirable. And I was like, like I always ask, like, what is going on? Why is this happening? So, my yeah, research, and they start in the schools. Yeah, they start in the school setting. Yeah, and that's why my research really just led me, you know, down that route. I wanted to be. Uh, a teacher I wanted to work in jails to help implement programs in schools or in jails to really um to help grab those students who were borderline who were on the cusp of you know becoming a professor or a neurosurgeon one day but also have the potential to become an inmate not because of anything that they're doing wrong just because of the the situation they were given so that just led me later on to doing more research in school to prison pipeline from the educational perspective. And I really was like, okay, how does this happen? How do they get here? So now I guess you can lead me to my graduate research. So my graduate schools, I, um, you know, background about grad school, I have one master's in counseling psychology from school education, and I'm finishing up my second master's in public health with a concentration in urban public health. And whew, I would just say that combination led me to just digesting the literature from 
you know, a multifaceted perspective because I'm learning the, the, the foundations of psychology and how humans work, but I'm also learning about health in the policy perspective. And I was just, I just was blown away because I've learned how at such a young age, students and just people, we, we can learn so many good things, but we could also be fed so much negativity and we can form some really, really bad habits early on. And I then as I was just going down that path, learning more about more of the, the critical race theories and more, learning more about the health models and just learning about health equity and education equity, I just wanted to look at everything from a standpoint of what is the best for everybody. So really, it's really been helpful to have that background and learn social emotional learning because all of those avenues, like I said, led me to right here, you know, led me to, you know, going to CUNY, studying community health and health policies, because whatever is going on at the community, at the at the school level, I would I think, and you know, research shows is happening in the community, vice versa. So if you see a community, you know, that's struggling with you know opioids or drugs, chances are it's going to, you know, come into the school at some perspective because those same families that are in those communities that may be using or distributing, you know, illegal drugs, their kids might be impacted because how they're learning their morals and the values at home from those same parents and and like I said none of those yeah. morals or any fault of their own is just the larger system there yeah it's so, kind of like that idea it sounds like you're describing that idea that's you're drawn to what you know kind of and that's it's not with any fault it's just what you know yeah and what we know isn't always the best and it always isn't always yeah. the worst but learning but taking a critical standpoint from what you know and asking yourself about it more and trying to use metacognition to think about your thoughts to really critically analyze yourself is what you know my research is right now so leading to where I'm at I'm really trying to understand more about how we digest information in the world around us which which is, I think is pretty cool because the more we understand about how or why we got to a conclusion, the more we can unpack and reverse engineer how we got oh, yeah. there. And social emotional learning, you know, it is, is, is a, I guess it's like, um, I don't want to say it's a one tool that fits all, but it is because there's no age limit for social emotional learning. There's no ceiling. You know, there's, def- there's definitely curriculums per grade level and per, you know, developmental stage. But if you are willing to, to experiment with adults and to experiment with the larger community at large, I just feel like you could take any social emotional intervention and scale it up to where you need to be because the, the one thing about social emotional learning, you can't be an expert until you know what your target audience needs. Mm-hmm. I could take I could take the best intervention and take it to another place and it's going to, it might fail miserably because there's so many dichotomies, there's so many different groups and there's so many levels of readiness for change and that we can't just say, you know, it'd be, it's, it's pretty, it would be 
ignorant at the most fundamental root for any one person to say that they have the answer for every problem because there's there's a limitless amount of problems that you know this world has there's always gonna be problems but finding out what the community needs and finding that collective voice to say hey this is what we as a whole need to change and to you know be in a better place encompassing you know the smallest person's voice to the biggest person's voice to the richest person's voice to the poorest person's voice that that is right there is the key to any change to any you know system you know like i said social motion learning the system everyone loves you can't have a system we all love without understanding what the people who are going to be moving within a system really need because otherwise we're doing it injustice to them i'm so passionate about you know (laughs) my work because i didn't just i'm not just reading in the books you know like i've been doing this work before i knew i've been doing this work because i growing up in plainfield you know you see you i've seen you know like people die i've seen you know like the products of you know the opioid epidemic that's that not that, that didn't you. yeah that didn't hit the suburbs i've seen opioids before they were became you know designer drugs that you get out of your medicine cabinet because yeah. when you have communities that are impacted by trauma that have just been stepped on mm-hmm. they're going to find ways to cope and they're going to find ways to run away from that pain that they're feeling and they're going to find ways to rebel against the system that put them in a situation that they seem to can't get out of. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that you bring up critical race theory earlier because it does tie into that so significantly. It does. It does. And uh, critical race theory, it's one of those things that when you look at it, what, what's being taught today, and when you look at what's being the roots of it, it's it's kind of being lost. You know, I might be going on a tangent here, you know, no, but okay. it, it leads to, you know, a lot of the problems we see in urban communities, I guess, because critical race theory, it was bred on, you know, the Black national movement, you know, Black Panthers, the Hugh Punons, the Martin Luther Kings, you know, it was bred on that. It was bred on, you know, bringing the power back to the people, to the community and letting them yeah. f- be free thinkers, you know, because when we're, when we were put into these weird systems that we never had any say over it became it becomes and it breeds a lot of hate a lot of frustration and just a lot of pain because that's like you know me going to a place i've never been before and saying hey i'm from america or i'm from new jersey what what we're doing here is amazing you guys should try it yes you know it might work but the chances are it might not, you know, it might seem cool in the beginning, but when the people who didn't, who don't really know what's going on, who aren't educated enough to, to critically ask questions or to just think about how something, you know, that's going on, how it might impact them now or 10 years later, when they don't, when their voices aren't heard, it's going to cause problems because people are going to, you know, be hurt and, and feel like they were left out of what's made for them. Yeah. Also going like off all of your undergrad and graduate research, you also had a big role as editorial board member for the Journal for Social Action and Counseling and Psychology. 
So how was that experience? Wow, that experience was tough because um, I didn't realize (laughs) what being editorial board member was. And, you know, like I, I was, it was, it was learning because it was a very, it was a very good learning experience for me. And I'm still doing it. So I'm still learning because reading others people, other people's work and trying to really analyze their standpoint and not be too biased, you know, for my own biases and my own, you know, positionality, it's hard because you have to separate what you know and what you think you know from the facts that are given to you. And that's so hard because we like, how do we draw from information that we don't know when we're supposed to, or how are we supposed to quiet out our own biases when we don't know that we have our own biases? So I've been doing a lot more reading and just background reading to check myself, to fact check my own thoughts and to fact check the ideas that come to my own head about another person's perspective. Because, you know, I, yes, I, I, you know, call myself a researcher, but I'm still human. And at the fundamental root, humans cause a lot of bad things that are going on in this country, in, in the world. So I try, I try not to, you know, separate myself from anything bad and, and just having that self-evaluation and always checking myself, you know, really made this process of being on the board, you know, editorial member a lot more fun and rewarding because when I when something I thought I was done with I went back and really sat down with a critical eye and I was like oh wait I could think about this differently or maybe I should you know go deeper this way because I never know if this is good enough until somebody gives me feedback or vice versa but I guess I was in the position I was in because who like the people who chose me, they must have thought that what my positionality and where I am and who I am in this world was was decent enough to help credit, you know, to help, you know, critique others work. So do you bring that those skills back when you're reading your own research or collecting your own research? Yes, I try to. And, you know, by bringing those skills back, I just say on my own work, I take a little longer and I just slow down more. You know, when I think something's really good, I send it out to somebody I look up to or one of my advisors or one of my professors to give me their standpoint because, you know, I'm I'm green in this and I would rather have somebody who's done it and who's, you know, proven, tell me, you know, validate my stuff than my own validation you know my validation keeps me in this and it keeps me humble but others you know help me learn and really teach me what I don't know so going forward then with your research now this upcoming semester um well I don't know if you've been conducting it over the summer as well but um what tap topic will you be focusing on and kind of what's the question that you're asking and looking into? So in moving this fall, so I, like my research is still going to be geared upon social emotional learning, you know, and just I'm really, the, the main question I'm asking is how can, you know, how, what type of community health interventions can be used to help improve mental health outcomes, you know, to help decrease um 
chronic diseases and to just overall help improve resiliency factors in, you know, students and the community. So, you know, I'm using social emotional learning as my, a lot of my um, background theories because my main, I'm in schools a lot of places. So most of my places I've been working with are schools or healthcare settings. So just st sticking with, you know, children and youth and families has really, I've been finding success. So this fall, you know, hopefully it, with everything, you know, with COVID, because we're going to be in Brenda High School, hopefully we get to bring one of our interventions, which we started in the fall last year, back to the high school and really get it going. Because we, we had two students who we started with and then COVID got worse, but it was promising. You know, it was really, you know, it, how do I say this without saying too much? It was, it was very insightful because we're using motivational interviews to really assess for the readiness of change and to see if students are ready to change, if they know they need to change, and if they are, if they do want to change, what really motivates them, them to change. So we're just trying to, you know, at this point, understand and understand the students more and hear their voices and see how how deep and critical they they see the world and perceive the world around them. I think both in the healthcare setting and an education setting, like so much is gonna have change in the fall, not only because of COVID, but like all the movements that have happened in the past year. So how do you think like this is gonna affect your work or like the work of other people in this field coming into the fall? Ooh, I think it's going to impact my work and others work, you know, in two ways, you know, um, I guess I could start with myself because I know me the best. Um, I think I'm going to be getting busy and I'm going to really um, have a challenge for myself because I've been doing some of this work, but now it's really, okay, let's see if I can stand the, te the test of time. And that's what's going to be, um, I feel like, the test right now for everybody who's doing the work and trying to do it is to say, okay, you say you want to do this work, you say you want to work with marginalized communities, but do you really, you know? And I say that from the one standpoint of people who do this work aren't making millions of dollars from it. So this oh, yeah. work is more from the heart. If you really want to, you know, be a grassroots organization or try to help the communities that really need it, you have to be really invested into it because it's hard. Communities are hurt. They're dealing with a lot of trauma. They're dealing with a lot of mental illness that are not diagnosed because they, the lack of education, the lack of literacy around their own health, around their own community, you know, around just the stuff they're eating. So this is going to change, you know, the, I would say the last six months through a year is going to change this work and just any work that's dealing with health in the urban setting because the communities are asking the right questions now and people are not answering them the way they need to be answered. Ooh, I think, yeah, 
Yeah, like it's just I, I can give you a, a perfect example of this work. You know, I'm I was working for the the health department. You know, um, in Plainfield, and there was a lot of miscommunication around just COVID and the communications behind COVID. And that goes back to literacy and knowing what to digest and knowing how to really discern between fake news, real news, and half and half. Because a lot of times when we read stuff, we're reading to finish. You know, we read a paper to finish and we're not reading to learn because there's just the society we live in is instant gratification. Give me, I want to know. Okay, just tell me what I need to know and let me run with it because I don't really want to know the truth because if I have to work hard, I might give up because I don't have support. I don't have resilience. So it's like this big cycle of, you know, change that I feel like is going to come, but is not going to come into the systems that, you know, the system of oppression or like just the systems of, of bad start evaluating themselves and really start to, you know, I would say open up to change. And the only way you're going to open up to change is when you know that you need to improve. And I, I guess like, you know, people like um, researchers now and just grassroots organizations, they're going to just really have to believe in herself and really, I just trust the community because we've been so, we've been so like against the community and so against where we're from and the people who I would say are calling for help because we think they're less than because of the position they're in. But when we really look at it and we hold the mirror up, it's those same institutions who are looking down who put these people in these compromised positions. So yeah, it's just, it's going to, it takes time, but you know, we see like the, the generation that's coming up there, they're hungry and they're just knocking doors down because they're, they see that all the injustices that are happening just for what, for people being humans. So yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, it's exciting because we're going to really see who's real or not. And the field is going to, the field's really open and the power in the field of academia education is shifting because the people who are being impacted have been screaming loud enough with the right support. Super well said, super well said. Thank you. <laughs> well, going back to your point about um, like community trauma, what are some trauma focused interventional strategies or even some challenges that come up? Um, and so like going off of that as well, how did, how did your work with Prevent Child Abuse New Jersey um, as a chair on the Young Professionals Advisory Council likely like form these strategies or form the way you think or address these communities? Well, oh, that's my work really, you know, with Prevent Child Abuse and I would say my work you know, just with interventions has really been around development interventions and just quality assurance because there's so many interventions out there and there's so many programs out there that are here to help, you know, um, it's, it's, it's great, right? But the downside of it is when they're, they're disenfranchised and 
they're not on the same circle. They're not on the same wavelength. And I say that because you, you see it happening every day. Like you see the mixed messages about, you know, simply simply put soda, right? You take, take example, one community might be getting a message about soda saying, yeah, it's amazing, you know, but only drink diet soda. And other communities might say, might get messages that say, don't drink soda at all. It's all going to kill you, right? Is it true? Is it not? It might be. It might not be. But, you know, there people are being fed information that they don't really know how to digest and really know how to critically analyze. So when I'm when I'm when I look at interventions to help really, you know, target that and to really just help with trauma and to really help you know unpack trauma, I look at interventions that are are made by the community with the community you know but you do have you do have to have the experts on the team because they know the science but when i say the community needs to be involved i mean that we we need to really have people in the community who are who are the big mouths who who everybody knows we need to have you know uncle uncle bob or uncle jones you know from the football team who knows everybody in the community you know, to really stand solid and say, hey, um, we need change and this is how we can do it and really take those higher order ideas and those higher, you know, thinking aspirations of scientists, interventionists and really tell them to the community because just looking at, you know, like some of, some of the recent work I've been doing with prevent child abuse, we're trying to find ways to connect community, you know, community youth with corporations and CEOs. You know why? Because if I'm a kid from, you know, Norwalk or from from Trenton, and the the highest education in my family is a tenth grade, the high high school education, then a GED. Chances are, I'm not going to know anybody from Prudential, anybody from. Um, you know, the, the Berkshire Foundation or, you know, those type of places, because how, like, how would I even think about getting there, right? So yeah. just bridging those, those connections and being in, and being a proxy by creating, you know, a program or just building connection between these youth, you know, and setting the bridges there with enough support and the right foundations to meet these people and interact and learn from them. That's some of the work we're doing because we all have trauma. It's just the way that we deal with it and the people around us, you know, the way that they help support our falls because we're always going to fall. We, we can never dodge every blow or every adverse childhood experience or just adverse experience we're going to face in life. But just having the the tools to know what to do or to even have the tools to see them coming before they hit you and prevent that is key and you know prevent child abuse in jersey and just looking at where i'm at on the young professionals advisory council we're a team of young minds from different sectors who who have one mission and goal and that's to make you know life better and the communities better for youth and their families and by by doing that, we just hope to buffer all of the, the adverse experiences from policies that are made, the, from the, the communities that were impacted by redlining, by the mm-hmm. communities who, who, you know, 
are just impacted because they're getting withheld information from communities who are told that you are less than just because of how you look or because of the zip code you live in. Communities that, you know, are told that, hey, your skin color makes you different than these people. So you are less than and you cannot be a part of the cool kids club. You know, we want to just make life better by giving people information and the right mm-hmm. package for them. Because with, without the information, you're never going to know what you don't know. And until you know, you won't be able to do anything different because your behavior will still be the same because you're just using the same tools that you had. You're never incorporating nothing new. And when you bring in these new tools, which can be interventions or new tools, which can be new mindsets or just a breath of fresh air, meeting somebody from a different country or a different state, that could be all it takes for somebody to be inspired to, you know, start a new chapter in the, in the old book or to continue the old book and rewrite it to make it better and incorporate, you know, the change in life that we see or just the growth of a nation that should be happening. So I, I mentioned earlier that we love your Twitter. You do post a lot about like the failures of policy and the failures of policymakers. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that too and it, how it relates to that? Yeah, um, you know, like I said, my um, my PhD that I, I'm starting this fall is public health and health policy. And we look at the failure of policymakers, you know, like perfect example, I want to use this today. COVID right now. We're seeing that the COVID mandates are being reversed. And that's and that's the policy, right? Us masking and unmasking, those are policies and and orders from who? Our federal government and CDC, right? So look at other policies of saying, okay, why why do students who have free lunch not have the same access to a mental health, right? That's a policy, right? Free lunch is one policy that if you have X amount of income from your family and you have a certain amount of household size, you qualify for free lunch. But why don't we qualify for free mental health care when if we qualify for free lunch, chances are our living environments and our socioeconomic status aren't, you know, the best. We're not in the best environment. So if we don't have access to food, what makes you think I have access to to a good living condition? or access to tutors or access to a therapist who I might need after I've seen traumas in the city or somewhere I live. So my Twitter, you know, I just really use Twitter as like a proxy and like a tool to reach the masses, even though I don't have a big following, but to reach the masses or at least the people who support what I do, because a policy could be as simple as, you know, setting aside an extra million dollars a year for school behavioral health clinics, you know, a policy could be, you know, having extra grant money for single family homes, because we know that the impacts of one, two household families are astronomical to a child's, you know, just future in a child's endeavors and just how a child perceives herself in this world. So policy is like, is the baseline for everything in this country and the reason why i'm really really like gun ho about policy and i really want to be a disruptor 
against policymakers that we see today because policymakers are humans and these humans can be swayed by greed. We see a lot of these lobbyists, like these, these gun lobbyists or these big food companies or big pharma. It's, it's just deplorable to see, you know, how all these big lawsuits from these big drug companies from FDA, how they're getting sued for pumping poison out in the form of opioids, in the form of just not just horribly regulated food. And they know that they're giving these to people and they're just paying the right people to push a policy through or to get their food pushed through or, or to have the FDA lighten up some of their, their rules and regulations because it's sad to say, but money really does money really does rule everything in a capitalist country because working hard, right? No, how do you work hard if you're not given an opportunity to even work? How do you even know how good somebody can be if you're not allowing them to be? You know, so it's like it's it's that thing in this country where we say pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but how can you do that when there's policies in place that don't even allow you to learn about boots? that you would put these straps in and <laughs> and it's just sad because we we we're so good at blaming the blaming the victim here that we never let them speak and that's why you know i feel like voting and voter suppression is a real thing and people might not see it because as as a single individual it's hard to really digest some of the the bigger problems because there's a lot of forces and a lot of factors that even go into you understanding something you see on TV. You know, that that whole notion of intersectionality in the individual, that's that's cool and all, but intersectionality, we have to look at that, you know, as not just as the different forces that are coming to us, but the different forces that are even creating the synergy around us. Because it's like the whole force of yin and yang synergy, your energy, your vibes. That's real. If if you're trying to be the president, but you're hanging around, you know, crooks, you might become the president, but your your morals are rooted in thievery and crooked stuff, you know? So it's like it's kind of defeating the purpose of trying to be something righteous and holy, but you're going, you're using, you know, low down ways to get there as opposed to being honest, giving people all the information they need to know, giving them all the fine print and policies and really telling them, hey, if you approve this policy, you might get a stimulus check, but your your grandkids are going to be paying for that stimulus check 10 years from now because the country didn't really find money. We just borrowed money and we're going to tax the poor more, you know, and give the big companies breaks to help revitalize the economy, but they could do that <laughs> with getting less money to feed their CEOs. So yeah, like um, policy is just, it's, it's became, it became so complex and is hidden under all of these Latin terms in this country that we don't realize that, you know, menthol bans is a, is a is a fight from policy climate change is policy the food we eat in public schools is a policy uniforms are a policy even the curriculum we learn in psychology public health those are policies mandated by somebody and not everybody 
you know, really even knows how that impacts them. Not everybody knows with the APA how that their impact could really ruin a whole generation of psychologists or how, you know, med schools can really impact health equity by making the pipeline so small. You know, all these things were built upon policies because certain people or certain forces thought that, hey, to make this the best or to really rationalize our thinking behind this, we must make it a policy and write the fine print behind it and then create the intervention or create the books to help people understand the policy. So it's it's kind of, you know, like a, a double-edged sword, you know, like we're trying to learn from the policymakers, but the policymakers who are teaching us never wanted to change their policies because they might lose some power that they created. So so you they know, legitimize them too. Yeah. <laughs> they legitimize, you know, the bad things they do and they legitimize, you know, the trauma they cause onto people and the oppression they they breed. So it's like I said, it's deplorable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Some heavy stuff. <laughs> yes, it is, but you know what? <laughs> that's why we do the work, you know, that's why, you know, we do the work we do just because we know we, you know, like Dr. Elias tells me, he said, he says a lot of times that just the work he does, the way he's been doing for so long because of the the young people in the next generation and their ideas, you know, and I'm, I never got that because I'm young, but the moment I started <laughs> mentoring students and I started having undergrads, I, my learning got better and the way I perceive the work I do improve because young minds challenge me to even challenge my own thoughts and to challenge the way that I do stuff because I'm like, wow, that idea is amazing. So it's just like, I never, ever, ever put myself in a position to be the expert, even if people consider me the expert. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing about SEL too, is that there's always a set of fresh eyes to learn from, you know? Mm-hmm. Always. And, and that's like, yeah, because social emotional learning is a system that everyone loves, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it all goes back. It's a circle. <laughs> yes, it, it really is. It, it's amazing. I think we can like also all agree on how SEL is super important and like youth and especially kids about how you were talking about how Dr. Elias feels that he does this work like for our future youth. And I know we discussed before about your position as social and emotional learning consultant at like public schools. So what's like a personal experience that you have had like watching how SEL has impacted your students? Wow. Um, you know what? Let me, I'm going to take a second to think about that because okay. just because I guess it's bigger than my students, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to just use the school system, like okay. the high school I've been in, you know, because um, like I'm going on year three, but just going in in year one and just seeing, seeing the attachment or the lack of attachment to the students from the teachers, faculty, and staff there, it just, I would say is a, is a hundred percent increase just because when I first started there, 
people wouldn't even show to the meetings unless they had to you know you're gonna watch these kids grow essentially yes so yes just watching the kids grow but watching the adults grow watching my grad my Rucker students grow and just seeing how one idea and just some positivity has been bringing light so in our semi-structured interviews we've been working with students one-on-one and we've just been trying to just assess where they're at in life right now and how COVID has impacted them and hearing students just tell me that they wish they had more support from their teachers and they wish they had more trust from adults in their school because they feel lonely and they they want those connections and they're yearning for it really made me just like, wow. I just, I I paused and I was like, okay, this is real life. And I can relate to this student and nobody else in their school or in their life might not know what's going on. They might not know their emotions. They might not know their feelings. They might not know how much hurt they have, but they trusted me, a stranger enough to tell me that. And that was the biggest like impact and the thing I'll never forget is just students that I generally want to help felt that on our first meeting that hey, this person is really there to help me. They care about me and I am somebody. And I was just like, wow, you think that? Like you're feeling that and you're expressing that in many words. I could have never imagined being your age and having that much feeling, that much emotion and being able to say that because I was guided there. So help hearing students' raw voice you know, and really just dig down and just talk about their raw, unedited emotions in a safe environment with a stranger who is me is just something that I'm never going to forget and which makes me just keep going forward because I know that this work, like it's never, it was never for me, but now that I know it's bigger than me and bigger than what most people could think of because that feeling you know that feeling that you get touched by in the heart when somebody like when a student or just another human being is essentially you know opening opening like their their heart and their guts to you and showing you like hey like i'm vulnerable right now i don't know like what you are or who you are but i want your help is like uh, a feeling in like a, a a milestone in life that i just feel like you can never research enough unless you feel it and you you've been through it to know like hey that's you that could be me that could be you know my future children that could be anybody i know and that 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 just empathy and that connection i had through shared experience and through like storytelling has you know it's just it's just it just really helped set the tone for my work and everything i've done because that gave me all that I need to know that this is real. People need this and this can change the world. You know, social emotional, social emotional learning can truly change the world. And just working in a high school and hearing that come from a student changed my life.
That's really good to hear. Like just that children will be impacted by emotional intelligence going forward and then teach their children and their children and everyone else in their community. It's really good. Yeah. And and um I like you just said something, you know, really, really I think that's perfect in a time, you know, because they're going to learn, then it's gonna be passed down from generation to generation, you know, and that's and that's the one thing, you know, where I think storytelling and social emotional learning you know, how they're similar and why I say social emotional learning, we all do it because every day, you know, people gossip, people tell stories, people tell about what they saw on TV, you know. That's how but people connect, you know. Yes, we we, yeah. we we yearn for, we yearn for com- communication, we yearn for, you know, looking for groups, we yearn for that that genuine connection, right? And the more we know how to connect with others and talk about our roots, the easier it is to connect with people from around the world, the easier it is to connect with somebody who might be from Syria, but they might've met a friend from Newark who, who are both living in a war zone. You know, if I'm in Syria and I saw a bombing or I'm somewhere in the Middle East and I see a bomb go off or I hear a gunshot, but I'm also living in, you know, New Jersey and I hear loud fireworks at night or I hear gunshots. Symbolically, I'm living in the same environment as this person across the world we might not speak the same language but put us in a room and help us communicate and i bet you you're going to find a lot more commonalities than you're not you know looking looking at things from the the strength perspective and not deficit perspective is huge because that one you know that one dial of just saying oh this person is good or just giving them a neutral palette to write on or to really canvas their self it could change the way we perceive each other because if we critically just digest what they're saying and not have any biases or if we do be able to know the root of that bias or that that negative thought we're going to be able to check ourselves before we get to a point of ignorance or a point of hurt you know, we're going to just be really kind and caring and empathetic towards the other person. And it's cool. It's just like from South Africa, there's this, you know, there's this word called Ubuntu. And it's, you know, I am because we all are. And it's like, it is that, you know, that that system of uh, just togetherness, just family. I am because we all are. The strength, like my success shouldn't be based on what I do. It should be based on the collective body and the collective voice because if if my community is your community i feel like we should be sharing this community and if i'm hurting you might not need to hurt but you might be able you should be able to understand what i'm going through yeah because if i'm hurting and you hurt me or somebody else hurt me you would not want me to feel hurt again because you wouldn't want that done to yourself so it's like it's it's simple but like the older we get the more selfish you become the more the more, you know, life becomes harder and the more, you know, the system of, you know, me, 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 I, I, I takes precedent and the, the larger community gets lost. You, just, you mentioned uh, two different perspectives. Could you go over those a little bit? Yeah, um, perspectives as in what? Uh, could you just give me, tell me more? I just, I didn't, I didn't quite hear you there. It's, it's totally okay if, Okay. Um. I guess. Yeah. I <laughs> forgot too. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, buddy. <laughs> no, it's okay. Thank you. This is like. I hope I'm not going in a, on tangents because, like, um, 
I really, like I said, I look at social emotional learning bigger than the definition that we see because I feel like, like I said, it's really life-changing. So pull me back anytime. <laughs> yeah. it's, this is all really, really great. Don't Thank worry you. about it. So we want to just change the topic a little bit um, to the Urban Health Collaborative, which you founded. Um, so we're eager to learn more about it. Um, how did the project begin? Was there anyone or anything that served as your inspiration? How did it come about, you know? So I guess the Urban Health Collaborative, like I first thought about it when I was when I was younger, you know, um, I think I was like a freshman or sophomore and I was working with students that were from that were from, you know, all over the country. because I was working with international students to try to help them get ready just to help them learn English better and help them learn social skills and acclimate to the United States. And they were all older than me, and they were most of them were teachers or professionals from other countries, and they just were on in this exchange program. And I was like, wow, I learned from them, they learned from me, but somebody was teaching us, you know, we all had teachers. And I just always was, you know, attracted to this idea of combined collaboration. And, you know, we have to collaborate with things we don't know to make something we, we never knew we needed. And that's kind of, you know, where I look at the Urban Health Collaborative as it's more or less an idea than it is a project because it's a, it is a nonprofit, but it encompasses, you know, the three main, the three main factors of the Urban Health Collaborative are social emotional learning, which are community health interventions. Then we look at the second standpoint of, once you have interventions, how do you sustain that? So, and that's the second part we have programs, you know, to really help sustain, to really teach empowerment and to give the community the tools and skills to really flourish and to get over whatever hump or tackle any barrier that is. And then the third component is, you know, to really have, I would say, uh, a sound life, you know you need to have energy, you need to be fed, you need to drink water. And the third component of Urban Health Collaborative is our thrift store and our community garden. And the community garden, I would say, is something that isn't going to be bigger than social emotional learning and community interventions, but it might be because food and food insecurity is a, a global problem. So it's like food justice. Yes, food justice, but also just community health and health equity in trying to improve that and mitigate, you know, adverse childhood experience and just mitigate trauma that we all face. Because if I'm in a community and I'm in a lower socioeconomic community, chances are I'm struggling just with money. And if I don't have money, I can't get food. I can't eat. I can't. I can't be well, I can't get my medicine, but, but here's the one thing, food and water nourishes us all. So for me to even do what I'm doing today, I have my water, I, I had food. So looking at food as a proxy and looking at social emotional learning is another proxy. And what we really are doing at the Urban Health Collaborative is we're trying to create a community of like-minded thinkers with the one idea, the one notion of we have to disrupt the system 
to make it better for the people who are being impacted by it. So my target audience in the Urban Health Collaborative, our target audiences are urban communities right now in central New Jersey, northern New Jersey, children, mothers, and families. And we want to really give them the food they need to eat and nourish themselves. We want to give them the education to help to help grow. And when I say education, I don't mean formal education. I mean the soft skills, the hard skills, the street knowledge, and just in the research they they don't know they need to help with their own life. Because we see that in urban communities, chronic illness and chronic diseases are rampant. You know, there's a paper we wrote, you know, me and some of my colleagues, um, you know, I was a co-author on it and it's it's, it's in the CDC and the title is called Chronic Disease Among African-American Families. It's a, it was a systematic scoping review. And that really just touched base on how chronic diseases in black and brown communities, how they're not just an individual thing, they're a community thing. And the simple fact is, you know, what we found is that a lot of the morbidities that we're facing you know, Black, Brown communities are rooted in our community systems and how our familiar systems are. Because when you look at the, the bigger scheme of things and a bigger ecological model that we're moving in, somebody's controlling our every move, the system, our policy, that a lot of the times people who are being impacted by it and these systems, they don't know what is going on and they don't really know how that system got there. They just know that, okay, I voted and this is the outcome, but they don't know the process in between that. They don't understand, you know, how the knowledge that you don't have is the reason you might not be voting for your local government, for your school board person, or for your, even for your local health officer. Those are the things, you know, that we don't know, but to get there, to even sit down and be ready to digest this, you need to have the foundation. And that's what the Urban Health Collaborative is trying to do. We're trying to, you know, bring the food to you. We're trying to bring the knowledge to the community. And we're also trying to help, you know, disrupt the forces that are keeping people in that box. You know, we're trying to end the rat race. We want there to be enough cheese for everybody to eat because there is. There's enough knowledge, there's enough resources, and there's enough world for everybody to, you know, have a just and happy society. So, yeah, like when I'm, when you think about that, that's the Urban Health Collaborative. We, we began with an idea of, of ways to help just make life better for people. And as I started, you know, really getting more into my research and just really growing my career professionally, I was like, wow, I could do something cool because I'm having fun with it, but I'm learning the research behind it and I'm learning science behind it. And I know the community because I'm a part of that community. I'm a, I'm a part of every community that I'm trying to help save and make better, not save, but make better. I've been a part of, and I, I might not know what everybody's plights are, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty darn relatable, I think. And the Urban Health Collaborative, you know, it's, it's not, you know, a thing. It's more of a community. I, I'm, it's looking at already to be, you know, I want 
the Urban Health Collaborative to be the next community health center or the next one-stop shop where if you're in need of, you know, health, if you're in need of education or if you're in need of, you know, information or knowledge, I want the Urban Health Collaborative to be a repository or a place that you go to and you get treated like a human and you get and you you leave feeling like, wow, I really gained something today and I matter. Because once we once we know that we matter to somebody else and we have that that sense of self-worth in this world and in this life, we're going to start to view ourselves differently and we're going to start to want better for others. Do you have any like specific memorable stories or like something that you'll never forget from this project? Yeah, um, I guess it's recently, you know, we're because we're getting we're planning, you know, our first kickoff event in the fall in September. And I started sending out donor letters and fundraising letters, you know, so we started a campaign on Launch Good, and I started just sending out, you know, flyers to um, different organizations. So, so far, we collected almost $800 from grassroots, you know, fundraising, and then I sent out a letter to Trader Joe's, which is one of my favorite stores, and um I know I just sent out a letter to them just asking if they will help with our event. And they said, yeah, so they're going to help. You know, They're going to be one of our sponsors for our, our event. So oh, wow. it's just, yeah, it's just really, <laughs> like the most memorable part right now is just seeing that my dream and my vision of a more just society is bigger than me because other people are liking it. They're resonating with it and they're trying to support me. So it's just, it's just really seeing what I'm doing work and grow and that people really, you know, like me because besides anything, the Urban Health Collaborative, you know, is a part of me. That's my brand. You know, I'm the founder and CEO right now. So for every person, you know, who's ever retweeted or shared or donated money or just you know, been like, tell me more, it's it's kind of a direct reflection of me, my heart, my pain, and, you know, what I feel. Because anytime anybody asks me about the Urban Health Collaborative, they're not going to give me a shut up because it's more than just a nonprofit. It's, it's a new life for a lot of people. So what have you guys been up to during the pandemic then, the Urban Health Collaborative? Um, we just not really been you know, reaching out, um, getting our structures in place. So, you know, we've just been really connecting with organizations to present, to show them some of our work. We've been getting our thrift store ready. We've been getting our, our urban garden ready. Um, so right now, you know, we're, we have about 12 different, you know, crops, right? Not crops, but like we have about 12 different beds of like mm -hmm. spinach, um, broccoli and different fruits that you know communities like that are healthy to give out you know to some of the students we work with and their families because we, that the science tells us in just the math that one yield of fruits and veggies for the summer you know donated to a family can help them save twelve hundred dollars in, in three months so oh, wow. if you take every quarter and you multiply that by four because there's four quarters in a year you could save, we could save a family 
$5,000 and just, you know, oh, that's yeah. one family. And that's looking at on a small scale, you know? So we're just really trying to get, not trying to, we are, we're just getting everything in order. You know, the thrift store, we had our first sale. We we got, you know, so many donations from students and from adults around us who are like, hey, we have clothes, but we don't want to give them to the Red Cross or other people. And I'm like, hey, Mm -hmm. collaborative you know we're here so we're just in building we're just in building you know our network we're just trying to really advertise and tell people who we are until we're until we were fully launched and we're and we're out here you know doing our stuff because we just got the green flag we partnered with Piscataway Public Library we're doing a four-part mental health workshop series you know and to really teach community about mental illness you know depression anxiety what mental health hygiene is and how to build resilience you know and because resiliency factors help you with all of that they help you just become a better stronger person because like i said earlier we're never going to get out of the way of all negativity but being able to you know have the the synergy around us to protect us and having Mm -hmm. the skills and tools to keep us whole and sane is a difference between you know a trip to the er for a mental health crisis or a trip to you know to the president's white house because you did something amazing it's that simple but we're not taught that and we're not made to understand these topics that way because they're complex and people are hungry so they can't sit (laughs) down to even think and digest about what's going on because they're trying to get money for their next meal that's stress that's extra stress they have to deal with yeah it it sucks because stress makes people do a lot of things you know you see Mm -hmm. you see drug dealers or you see people who are in organized crime asking why they're doing it they want you know they're doing it a lot of times i bet just to have a normal life but their normal life is different than my normal life vice versa so you know, empathy is is huge here. Before I forget, could you shout out the address or at least where the community garden is located? So the community garden right now is in my office and at my at my apartment. So <laughs> so the office is at it's in Somerset, so it's in Davidson Avenue at my office. And yeah, um, we're looking right now, you know, to grow because. The fundraising we're doing, we're trying to get at least um, a couple, some more money to either A, secure uh, a partnership somewhere outside where we can actually, mm-hmm. you know, have the community garden and our interns will help with it, or raise money to have a uh, uh, inside, you know, grow station here for fruits and veggies. So, you know, it's, it's fun because we're doing it and we're just... It's not for it's not for me. It's not for anybody else. It's for the community. So, it's like we're telling them, "Hey, this is what we're doing to help the community." So it's like it's amazing because every every dollar, every every bit of support we get is just it's just validation by the community because it's for them. <laughs> is the community thrift store also there? Is it online? Yeah. So only? the community thrift store, it's um, it's online. So. You can find the community thrift store at www.thecommunitythrift.store. And that's a Shopify store, you know, and yeah, then that's we have the Instagram is the the community corner thrift store. 
Okay. So yeah, we're all over. You know, we have a lot of merchandise. We got our first sale yesterday. Woo-hoo! So yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's um, it's really cool to see that people are supporting our cause. You know, it's amazing. So before we completely let you go, uh-huh. what are some things that you'd make sure to tell your younger self, younger Zayir, at whatever age? But please do tell us what age you pick and why. Um, I would say I would tell. Oh, I think I, I was sixteen or seventeen year old. Seventeen, yeah, that was when my grandpa passed away. Right, he was my best friend, and um, I would say to him, that self of me is like time stops for nobody, you know. But keep your head down and stay positive, because everything that you dream about and all the pain that you felt you're going to help make it better for others because what I do, like I said, isn't for me. It's, it's a mix of the pain I felt growing up and the pain I see of others and just to share their experiences. So I'll just tell, like I said, tell, you know, that 17 year old Zaire that, Hey, just keep going forward. Um, take care of yourself, you know, drink a lot of water, work out, exercise, because, you know, it's never ending. It's a battle. And just being your best self, being mentally well, being physically strong and just academically sound is going to be your savior. And just this was what kept me here, you know, and that's it. Just stay strong and just use your minutes and hours every day to the best of your ability. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming today. We really enjoyed talking to you and listening to everything you have to say. So is there anything that you want to say to like everyone else listening? Yeah. Um, whoever else hears this, you know, I just want to say I'm me. Um, I'm very raw and um, unscripted, you know, um, but I'm just passionate in everything I've ever done, you know, professionally, academically, really has been you know just to shift mindsets and help the world believe it can be a better place because mm-hmm. I was always inspired by somebody whether it was, it was a positive person or a negative person but whatever I was inspired by inspired me to change or try something better or to be better and whoever's listening no matter what age you are no matter like where you're faced at in life or no matter just where you are just keep asking answers stay hungry hungry and never give up on yourself because you never know who's going to value you more than you value yourself and that person could change your life all right listeners that's pretty much all we have for you today you can find more about zaire ali on linkedin and twitter at zaire zaire's s ali where you can find him sharing sel related content To learn more about the Urban Health Collaborative, check them out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Urban Health Collaborative. And head over to UHC's Community Corner, which we talked about in the podcast, a virtual thrift store fully operated by interns and volunteers, uh, where all proceeds help support their mission and vision of UHC and help face interns during their semesters. As always, make sure to check out the secdlab.org and 
SECD Lab on Twitter and Spotify slash Apple Podcast um, to stay in the loop with SEL and podcast updates. Have a good day, everyone. <laughs> Thank you.